Let's turn to Revelation chapter number 20. As you can see, we are getting very close to the end of the book. Revelation chapter number 20. Focus today I want on verse 7 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 15. Revelation 27 through 15. I'd like to read that and then have a word of prayer with you. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not a happy section, is it? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and seek your help, your work in our lives, our understanding of this passage, and an appropriate application as well. We are totally dependent upon you and the work that you can do. It's your word, and it's powerful. We know it. Uh, it accomplishes what you send out it to do. And I pray that uh, uh, you might be active in our midst today. Work in our hearts, draw us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About ten days ago, I stood on a platform, and there were three distinguished judges sitting in front of me. They were kind enough to blindfold me. And all of these judges were armed with enormous water pistols. Actually, water hoses, I think. Because you can't quite get the volume of water out of a pistol as you got out of those. Those little mini Niagara Fall things. If you were not here on the 4th of July, you missed some of our festivities. Uh, you missed that judgment day for those of us who stood before these judges and uh, had to answer questions about America and Hillsdale. And I had some of those real close, too. I figured just the tennis thing. I was in the right family of brother. What's the difference? But I found out you could get wet. Very wet from those. Now, I thought today, since I'm going to talk about the great white throne judgment, we can have a little fun, too. <laughs> Question and answer time. <laughs> and I know some of those judges are here today. <laughs> so we can have some fun, huh? Yeah. That would be fun. 
If only the topic I had today were, were, were just as enjoyable. It's not, to tell the truth. We can have fun with things like this. But uh, the reality is, there is a future judgment. And we just read the section that dealt with the future judgment. And uh, it is horrific. In, in every description you can give to it, it is horrific. Uh, um, the verdict and the sentence is even beyond words. Um, and so we're going to have to look at that here today. And I call this message today, The, the Believer and the Great White Throne Judgment. And you may be thinking right now, when I put those words together, what does a believer have to do with the great white throne judgment? And maybe that, that's piqued your curiosity, maybe that sounds a little frightful. But there is a link here that I want to talk about, a, a specific thing, as we work through our text. Um, our study to this point has been specifically the future experience of the believer and heaven. We've used that title often. Uh, I have purposely walked through uh, this, these events chronologically so that uh, we can see what Scripture teaches us about our future. And it's good for us to know this. The focus has been on the church, the church-age believer. So, I'm going to set this out of my way so I can think. We bypassed, as we talked through these things chronologically, we bypassed things that weren't the focus of the believer. When we talk about end times, we put our focus on a lot of things that really don't involve us. We like to talk about the tribulation, probably because it's so, such a curious, uh, curious thing and, and such an incredible thing. Uh, the details of the Antichrist his identity, and, and all that he will do in the course of that time. Uh, we talk a lot about those things, too. But in reality, they have nothing to do with us as believers. But they get a lot of our focus. Uh, so, let's walk through this just, just quickly as a summary, so we get a full understanding of what we've seen. We begin with the fact that uh, our focus is on church-age believers. Right? You're part of that as a believer in Jesus Christ. You're a church-age believer. All right? uh, this group consists of all believers in Jesus Christ who trust Him alone for their salvation um, from the day of Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2, sometime around the year A.D. 33, through all of history, the A.D. years, up to the present time where we are now, all the way up to and including all other believers in Christ before the rapture of the church. When that day happens, that's the end of the church age. The rapture of the church. This then is the only time that the church will exist on this earth in a pre-glorified body. Right? This is the only time. This church age. We will be back, but in glorified bodies. The next event for the church, age, believer, you and I, is to depart from this world. Like all, well, like all who have been before us, really, the possibility is great that uh, our departure will be by death. We started with this study. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 
precious verse to us. That which may alter our departure will be the rapture of the church. I believe the rapture could take place at any time. It could be yet today. I wouldn't mind that at all, would you? It, in it, the entire church body, every single believer of the church age from A.D. 33 to the present, until that moment he comes, will participate in it. You will not miss the rapture. Alright? I guarantee that. Those who have already died, they will descend with Jesus to the clouds to be reunited with their glorified physical bodies. The believers who are still alive on this earth will be changed to glorified bodies and will join the Lord in the clouds. We will join the rest of the true church at that time and we will return with Jesus into heaven and I think there's going to be a lot of rejoicing going on. These things I could show you as, as we have in the past. Verses from 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Strong passages that teach us these very things. Now, once we get up in heaven, I believe that the believer's judgment will begin. We will not be judged to see whether or not we belong in heaven, right? We will be judged on our service in the name of the Lord. To test and see its real value. To see if, if our motives, even in that service, was to His glory. We will have our works evaluated. And that which is pleasing to the Lord will receive a reward. And that which is worthless in His sight will be burned up. However, so you understand it, it's an award ceremony. It's an award ceremony. And I pray that you and I will receive a lot of rewards. That would be exciting. Now, after the award ceremony, we will participate in what the Bible calls the marriage supper, or the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 19, we were back there a couple weeks ago, makes reference to it having already been completed at the time the Lord Jesus Christ comes the second time. It's already finished. The marriage has already taken place. And the invitation is to the supper. Call it the reception. Alright? In Ephesians 5, it gives us the description of Christ's love for His bride, the church. I don't take that picture to be figurative, symbolic, allegorical, and all the other ways people like to interpret it. I believe it is a literal thing. I say that a lot when I speak, I think. I see these things literally. Even if I can't explain it like I would like to, I know it is a literal thing. I simply know that the church, the true church, you're part of that as a believer in Jesus Christ, belongs to Jesus Christ. That's why he comes and claims it for himself. And that will be realized in heaven. Now, these events must take place sometime during the tribulation period. You see, we're going to be kind of occupied, aren't we? I'm not sure our attention is going to be, hey, what's going on down there during the tribulation? But we will have a better focus. That's on our Savior and all the activities going on in the tribulation period. Um, so you're going to miss out on those events on the earth. I hope you don't mind. We're going to have some glorious things going on up in heaven. Now the next event, after those events take place, will be the second coming of Christ down to this earth. 
He's not coming, as we have heard many times before, as a humble baby again to be born, but he's coming as a warrior to rescue his people, the Jews. They will be on the very verge of, a, of extermination by the Antichrist himself and the armies that have surrounded them. The key principle we've learned all the way through these, and I've, I've said it several times, is that the believer, that's you and I, will always be with the Lord. Is that correct? That's what he tells us. We go to be with him and we will always be with the Lord. So, when he comes, we come. You could even glance across the page at your text here in Revelation 19.14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's a reference to the church. The church coming down with him when he comes on that day. Now, we are not going to fight the battle. We are not going to fight the battle. We will be there, though, present. We will be there to see our Savior and our Lord accomplish his promise and save his people. Soon after that victory, number of days, I'm not positive, there's a handful of them there, but he will set up 1,000 year reign on this earth. We call it the millennial kingdom. Jesus will literally sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule over the whole earth for a thousand years. That we saw last week. It's in keeping with his promises to his people, the Jews, and the multitude of prophecies in Scripture. He will fulfill every single one of them. Where will we be during these days? With him. When he comes to reign for a thousand years, where will his bride be? With him. That's the church. That's you and I who believe in Jesus Christ. It says in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I believe just that little clip right there at the beginning of verse 4 is in reference to the church age believer. We will have two primary responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. One is to render judgment, or some people call it oversight. Perhaps it, 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 it deals with angels and their activities. Uh, perhaps it's just the people of this earth that we have some responsibility toward. Um, we will find out when we're there, but we will be reigning with him, it says. And also, we will serve as priests. And the whole picture of a priest is somebody who points others to the Lord for worship. That's the job. And that should be our job anyway, right? We should be very quick to lead people to come and worship our Savior. And that's what we'll be doing throughout eternity. Chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's us. Alright? Now I've showed you all these things and I believe they are supported in Scripture and I took all the verses literally as I explained them logically lining them up in a chronological order and I hope I've been clear enough in explaining it so that we can see what we're going to be doing. Now the next event is where we are. Next event after the Millennial Kingdom. It is not a pleasant theme. 
as we've already read it here this morning, but it's something that we will have a part in. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, before I start to work on this a little bit in this chapter 27 through 15, I want to just kind of catch you up to speed on a couple of other things that are going to take place. They're not directly related to us as to our study of the church age believer, but they do have, um, they are commented on right here, and I think we need just to put them in their place. Uh, we tend to talk a lot about the rapture of the church. I don't mind that, all right? But we talk a lot about it as if that is the only thing that, that should be talked about. Right? Sometimes our focus is pretty big on ourselves and what we're going to get out of the end times. Uh, but there is evidence that there will be other resurrections yet to come that are very much like the rapture of the church. For one thing, I believe the Old Testament saints will be resurrected. Literally, physically resurrected. And that would be sometime just before the Millennial Kingdom. Currently, I think Scripture teaches that the Old Testament saints are in heaven now, in the presence of Christ, but they will have to have their physical bodies resurrected, and they would have to be seen alive and glorified on this earth. After all, how are they going to receive the literal promises of the land... And how are they going to see what God has promised them about their king if they're not here? They need to be here. So, in order to keep the promises, God will raise them up and put them in their land during the millennial kingdom. So they can see exactly what he promised them. Daniel chapter 12 verse 13. This is just one prophecy directed toward Daniel, but I think it's appropriate for all of the Old Testament saints. It says, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. If that's true of Daniel, that's true of Moses, that's true of Abraham, that's true of David, that's true of those saints we read about in Scripture. Now, that means they're going to have a resurrection. Wouldn't that be interesting to watch? An Old Testament rapture? <laughs> Somewhat. Their physical bodies are uni united with them again, and they're alive on this earth. I believe there will also be a resurrection for the tribulational saints. Those are the folks who have gone into the tribulation period, and sometime during that, they came to know the Lord as their Savior, and several of them, many, many of them actually, are martyred for their faith. They don't make it through the tribulation period. They, they die sometime during that. They would have to be resurrected if they're going to be a part of the millennial kingdom, wouldn't they? At some point they would. Matter of fact, the rest of chapter 20, verse number 4. I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Now you know it's tribulational time, just by those words. And had not received the mark on the forehead or on the hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we can pinpoint this one, can't we? Tribulational saints have to be resurrected, brought back to life. There they will reign with Christ, Christ for a thousand years. So sometime around the time of these resurrections, 
there will be, I, I suppose, a judgment for those believers. A judgment for Old Testament saints, a judgment for a tribulational saints. I think it might be very similar to the judgment that the church age has already gone through, and I think it probably has to do with rewards. Though I don't have a verse or two to support that at this time, it just seems logical it follows the pattern. Now there's one more resurrection we've got to consider, yet, on top of all these. And maybe it's more like the transformation or the change that we talk about if we're alive and remain and caught up together to be with them in the, in the rapture, then we are changed, right? So, can God do that? Can He do it with other people besides us? <laughs> yes. Think of this. Millennial saints. People who are living during the millennial kingdom. They come to the end of the millennial kingdom. They're still in earthly bodies. How can they live in a glorified state? Unless their bodies are changed. Their bodies had to be made fit for eternal dwelling with Christ. And I believe there would have to be a change there. So don't be surprised if you see it, okay? That God's going to do this. He's, he's got to... 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the idea that there's a body suited for every place. And, and I think they'd have to be... If there's a physical body, there'd have to be a glorified body. And in that case, they would have to undergo that too. But that would be the end of all the good side of what we call the resurrections. That's it. Alright, you got all that down? Do I have to get my gun back? Alright. Now, for the rest of the world, the unsaved, unbelievers, folks who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have never lived a life by faith in God, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament times, those in the present time, those yet to be in the tribulation time, those to be in the millennial time, if they should die without faith, they go to a place called Hades. We have the term hell, is the term we use for it. It's a temporary holding place for their judgment. That's where they go. Considering all the people who have lived on this earth since the day of creation, I am very much afraid that this is a large number of people. Jesus himself described it this way once. He said that the, the way is narrow for those who find life, and few there be who find it. And the way is broad that leads to destruction. And how many are on that path? It says many. It's probably an incredible number. We can't even fathom the idea of it. But they are in that place we call hell, waiting for their judgment day. Just so you know, hell is not the same thing as the lake of fire. I'll show you why. In the verses we read here, verse number 14, chapter 20, then death and Hades, that's hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. They can't be the same thing if one of them thrown inside the other one, right? Separate locations. Hell is, is not the same place. Now, if I could compare this for you, just by way of information, and to some degree, it, it's not perfect, but it's, it's close, at least for our understanding. The difference between hell and the lake of fire is the difference between a jail and a prison. Alright? Now, both of them are meant to be a place of restraint, a place of punishment. 
in the case of hell and the lake of fire, both are places of torment. But in a, a human way of saying this, um, if we see somebody arrested and they're taken to jail, they wait until their trial, and if they're convicted and sentenced, they end up in prison. Prison is a more permanent location compared to jail, which is temporary, holding them for judgment day. Right? Using that kind of a picture, uh, hell is a temporary place. It currently holds those who have died apart from faith in God and Jesus Christ. It's still a place of torment. We know that because Jesus described it for us. Remember the rich man in Lazarus? He was in that place called hell. And there he was suffering as well. But those souls that are there are waiting for judgment day, the day they'll be thoroughly convicted and shown to be so, sentenced to the lake of fire, which is the permanent place of torment. You see the picture? Those two terms, we see them a lot in Scripture, and sometimes we kind of bunch them together and act like they're the same thing. They're not. They're two different locations. Now, with that understood, let's go through a series of judgments that are mentioned here in chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation. First, there's a judgment back in chapter 19, verse number 20, of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now, he's called the beast here. The Antichrist is identified as the beast. And it says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. They are the first two occupants of the lake of fire. It happens before the thousand year reign of Christ. They don't even see judgment day. This is their judgment day. They are taken right off the face of the earth and cast immediately into the lake of fire. Second thing, chapter 20 verse 7. The second judgment pertains to Satan. A thousand years has gone by. He has been bound for a thousand years. He is released. And it says right here in verse number 7, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. number of them will be like the sand of the seashore. And they would come up on a broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And you know what? It's amazing that he still doesn't give it. He is not going to win. He tries and he tries and he tries and here's another attempt. He will try. A thousand years did not reform him, did it? He was tied up for a thousand years. And first thing on his mind was, I'm going to try again. And off he goes, and the end of the verse says in verse number 9, And fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice, Satan is not the caretaker of the lake of fire. Our cartoons are not correct. You always see the little picture of the guy with the red suit and the horns and the pitchfork poking people back down into the fire. Uh, no. He is also tormented in that place. It is his punishment place. 
He is not the caretaker. He's not the governor of the lake of fire in any way. He's being tormented. It just said so in verse number 10. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice, they. That's the Antichrist and the false prophet. How long have they been in that place? A thousand years! And they're still there! They're not annihilated. They weren't consumed in the flames. They weren't rendered unconscious because they're still being tormented, the verse says. That gives you a a glimpse, if you will, of the duration of the lake of fire. It does not stop. And the people do not disappear who are cast there. They're still there. And I'm not positive on this either, but I think that the demons also partake of judgment at this time. I think so, because Jesus did teach that the place of torment is prepared for the devil and his angels. So I think they're a part of this judgment, though it doesn't say that in words in this text right before us. So, that's the second judgment that we will notice. First, the Antichrist and false prophet are thrown in there. Then Satan is thrown in there. And then the third judgment comes along. And this is kind of an interesting one. Most people don't see this as a judgment. But look at verse number 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Who are them? Earth and heaven. This present earth, this present heaven. They also will be destroyed in that day. I say it's somewhat like a judgment, isn't it? They have to be destroyed. Both of them are sin-tainted, by the way. You say, the earth? Yeah. Do I have to prove it? I don't think so. What about heaven? Who do you think has access to it right now? Who's stomping and leaving his footprints all over the heavens we know right now? Satan himself has access to it. So, God has a, a plan for the present earth and the present heaven. We know that. We started with that. But... This also is more related to us than perhaps the first two judgments. And here's why. We will be living on this earth during and to the end of that millennial period in our glorified bodies. Correct? All of a sudden, that earth that we're living on, which is this present earth right now, will be dissolved. Does that relate to us a little bit? That's home right now. Alright? And what about the heaven? That present heaven that we're going to go to and spend throughout the tribulation period. It's only seven years that we're up there. Then we come down to the earth to be with Christ. What happens to that place? It is destroyed too. So there's two places that we're going to have a a party in, and they're both destroyed. He says right here, in verse number 11, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. Now, that's not to be unexpected, folks, really. Scripture has told us that from early on. It's been explaining that to us. You can find a verse like Isaiah 51, verse 9. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Second Peter 3, verse 7. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. You know what? We don't need an atomic weapon to do this. Matter of fact, it tells us exactly how it will happen. From his own presence, they will flee. The word presence there, the Greek word is face. And I had this picture in my mind, and I don't know if it's entirely accurate, but it sure does sound pretty neat. He just looks at it, and it dissolves. How did he create this world? He just spoke it, and it happened, right? And in this picture, he looks at it, and it dissolves. It flees away, and there's no place for it to go, it says. And the other verses talk about it it being dissolved. They just disappear. Believer, where will you be? You will be with the Lord, okay? Just the fact that there's no place to stand for a few minutes, don't let that bother you. Okay? Earth is gone. Heaven is gone. But we will be with Him. Now, I'm not going to waste your time this morning talking about all the people who look at these verses symbolically. Alright? It's ridiculous. The number of ways they bring this all together. Uh, I take God's word literally, and I think these events will happen just like He said. They will happen that way. That's third judgment. Fourth judgment is what I like to call the final judgment. It's the unbelievers. Up to this time, picture this. It, it, just, just picture this, okay? You're going to only have to picture this because you won't be there. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, right? So, picture this. You've been waiting here for Judgment Day. And what you have seen is that the Antichrist and the false prophet had been thrown into the lake of fire. Then you've seen, a thousand years later... Satan and his angels, I believe, are thrown into the lake of fire. And then, you see, the heavens dissolve and the earth disappear. And all of a sudden, you might be thinking, is there any hope for me? And if you don't have any at that time, you are absolutely right. If Satan can't stand before his judgment seat, and demons can't stand there, and heaven and earth can't even stand in his own presence... What hope is there for an unbeliever? What hope is there for them? Could you imagine them being last on the list of those who go before the throne and realizing no one gets out of this? Matter of fact, they're probably thinking, where are we supposed to go? We can't go back to hell. It's gone. We can't go up to heaven. It's gone. We have no place else to hide but where? There's only one place left standing at this time. And that's the lake of fire. That's a frightful prospect. I I know it. But I'm thinking as I work this through this, those who've already spent their time in hell are guaranteed something at this point, aren't they? Absolutely guaranteed. Their stay in hell did not make them sorry. Matter of fact, the way Jesus describes it, their hearts never changed because guess what they've been doing for all these years? Gnashing their teeth. Isn't that the way he describes the place? They're not not repentant. 
They're not coming to him for a second chance. There is no second chance. That's frightful. I know it. But that's the reality of this section. Verse 12. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. That's the great white throne. Standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death in Hades gave up the dead which were in them. They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Death in Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Did you see any second chances in any of that? I didn't. A couple of important things to note. Just the fact that there's no place left for them. Everything is gone at this moment, except the throne where Jesus sits and the lake of fire. There's no place left for them. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, verse 14 says. That's it. The lake of fire waits them. The fact that they're judged by their works here. Now that's not hopeful things like, well, maybe we're measure up after all. These are not the kind of works that we're looking at with a believer doing service for the Lord. This is just proving that it doesn't work. You cannot accomplish this. You, it, the determination's already set. They open one more book, it says. And it's final proof, if you will, that they never believed in the Lord because the final book is the book of life and their name is not found there. Verse 15. Now, what does all this mean? What do we do with this? Well, start with the unbeliever for a minute. The end result will be eternal separation from God, right? That's what it says. I want to read to you a couple of things, and I probably have read this to you before. But I'm going to read it anyway. John Donne, an English poet, cleric in the Church of England, back in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Now, he's going to comment on a verse. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You've heard of a sermon Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards. That was written a hundred years or so after this that I'm going to read to you. All right? John Donne wrote this first. And these are the words he says. And it is a little lengthy. I hope I could read it uh, accurately. But listen to what John Donne wrote. When God's hand is bent to strike, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God. But to fall out of the hands of the living God is a horror beyond our expression, beyond our imagination. That God should let my soul fall out of his hand into a bottomless pit and roll an unremovable stone upon it and leave it to that which it finds there. And it shall find that there, which is never imagined till it came thither, and never think more of that soul, and never have more to do with it. 
that of that providence of God that studies the life of every weed and worm and ant and spider and toad and viper, there should never, never any beam flow out upon me. That that God who looked upon me when I was nothing and called me when I was not as though I had been out of the womb in the deep depth of darkness will not look upon me now. When though a miserable and a banished and a damned creature, yet I am still his creature and contribute something to his glory, even in my damnation. And that God who hath often looked upon me in my foulest uncleanness, and when I had shut out the eye of the day, the sun, and the eye of the night, the taper, and the eyes of the world with curtains and windows and doors, he did yet see me and see me in mercy by making me see that he saw me. And sometimes brought me to a a present remorse, and for a time to a forbearing of that sin. Should so turn himself from me, to his glorious saints and his angels, as that no saint nor angel nor Christ Jesus himself should ever pray him to look towards me, never remember him, that such a soul there is, that that God who so often said to my soul, Why will thou die? And so often sworn to my soul, as the Lord liveth, I will not have thee die, but live, when neither let me die, nor let me live, but die in everlasting life and live in everlasting death, that that God who, when he could not get into me by standing and knocking by his ordinary means of entering, by his word, by his mercies, has applied his judgment, has shaken this house, this body with agues and palsies and set this house on fire with fever and frighten the master of this house, my soul, with horrors and heavy apprehensions and so made an entrance into me that that God should frustrate all his own purposes and practices upon me and leave me and cast me away as though I cost him nothing. That this God at last should let me my soul go away as a smoke, as a vapor, as a bubble. But then... This soul cannot be a smoke, a vapor, nor a bubble, but must lie in darkness as long as the Lord of light is light itself, and never spark of life reach to my soul. What brimstone is not amber, what gnashing is not comfort, what gnawing of the worm is not a tickling, what torment is not a marriage bed to this damnation, to be secluded eternally, eternally, eternally from the presence of God. That powerful? I think of those words and and they bring uh, thoughts that are frightening, alarming to think of those who will experience such a thing. To be separated from the presence of God. And the duration is forever. Do we grasp such a word? Forever? One more thing I read and it's much shorter than this. This is actually recorded in the first recorded sermon of Charles Spurgeon. In 1855, he was a very young man, maybe 18, 19 years old, when he preached a sermon. It was on the immutability of God. That means God never changes. From Malachi 3.6, he says, I am the Lord, I change not. And in his points, he made several points. And point number five was that God is unchanging in his threat. Yes, he's unchanging in his mercy and his grace and all these things too. But he's unchanging in his threats. 
And in Mark 16, 16, he says, He who does not believe shall be condemned. Will God keep his word? These are, these are the words of Spurgeon. I read it to you. But now comes one jarring note to spoil the theme. To some of you, God is unchanging in his threats. I will tell you of a decree. He that believes not shall be condemned. That is a decree and a statute that can never change. Be as good as you please. Be as moral as you can. Be as honest as you will. Walk as uprightly as you may. There stands the unchangeable threat. He that believes not shall be condemned. What do you say to that, moralist? Oh, you who wish you can alter it and say, He that does not live a holy life will be condemned. That will be true, but it does not say so. It says, He that believes not. Here is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But you cannot alter it. You either believe or be condemned, says the Bible. And Mark, that threat of God is as unchangeable as God himself. When a thousand years of hell's torments have passed away, you shall look up on high and see written in burning letters of fire, He that believes not shall be condemned. But Lord, I am condemned. Nevertheless, it shall say, shall be still. And when a million years have rolled away, and you are exhausted by your pains and agonies, you shall look up with your eye and still read, shall be condemned, unchanged, unaltered. And when you shall have thought that eternity must have spun out its last thread, and every particle of that which we call eternity must have run out, you shall still see it written up there, shall be condemned. O terrible thought! How dare I utter it, but I must. You must be warned, sirs, lest you also come into this place of torment. You must be told rough things. For if God's gospel is not a rough thing, believe me, the law is a rough thing. It is frightful, isn't it? But it's a literal judgment. God says so. It's a judgment for the unbeliever. That's reality. That's why I plead with you again. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, make today that day. Come to know Him as Savior. There's either a Savior or a judge waiting for you. Now, I started with this, and I'll bring it down to this, because I know my time is really, really up. What does that have to do with you and me? What does it have to do with us? Where will we be? With the Lord, right? As much as I would like to be busy someplace else at that time, as much as I would like to think there is someplace else I should be, there is no other place. Remember? But the lake of fire. I believe we're going to witness this. That just is a conclusion I have to draw. Because who is the judge? The Lord Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to him by the Father to judge. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that true? That means he's there. Guess where we are? With him. Now you say, oh, this sounds terrible. What are you doing, Pastor? I I, want to say this and I think I understand it correctly. This is not a time of conviction on your part. All right? This is not your judgment. He's not holding this against you as if, well, I'm going to get them last and least. This is the time. 
This is not your judgment. But you will be present there. What will you be there for? Well, consider this. Are we not forever testimonies of what the grace of God can do? When the unbelievers line up there before that throne, and they look upon that throne, what will they see behind that throne, and beside that throne, and around that throne? Trophies of the grace of God. Is that you and me? Absolutely so. Will they be able to say, but God, you never gave man a chance. Look at the evidence all around the throne room. That's you and me. We shall always be evidence that God is a loving God, a grace-giving God, a merciful God, and the world that doesn't believe in Him will not have a leg to stand on because there is evidence of others just like them who came to know the Lord. We shall be there. You see? We shall be there. Now, I don't know if it's going to be easy for us, but I do know this. In Corinthians, it says that we are aromas. You could look that up in chapter 2 sometimes. To some, we're aromas from life to life, but to some, we're the aroma of death to death. And just the testimony of who we are standing before them will signify even stronger that they deserve what they're getting. Powerful, isn't it? Have you ever thought of yourself in that way? I really, really hope, because I I wonder at times, how will we feel at that moment, seeing these folks come before the, the Lord's throne and being cast into the lake of fire? You know, it doesn't say that tears are removed until the next chapter. Just so you know that. I find that interesting. But I hope that while we're here on this earth, that we've opened up our mouth at some time, and we've told people at some time, of Jesus and what he means to us and how they can be saved as well. I hope that we live such a testimony right now that the world can look at us and and know the difference Jesus makes in our life. In that day, we will be that testimony. In that day, we will be praising his glory. And I don't speak these things to harass you into witnessing. I think if you love Jesus and you live for him, you will be motivated to tell people about Him. I believe that's because of the glory of Christ and the testimony of the truth and the fact that time is short. I think we should be out there talking. We know the truth, don't we? And we know the end results as well. And how are they going to hear unless we speak it? But come judgment day, all of that is past. Opportunity is over. Not just for them, but for us as well. The spotless lamb of uh, the bride of Christ will be present at that judgment against those who would not believe our message. Uh, I hate to think that there will be some on the other side that we're going to recognize. That breaks my heart to think that. I think it's true, though. I think there's still time, and uh, the Lord is merciful, that we can share with them the message of God's grace. Do it. Do it. If you're a believer today, you have work to do. We do, don't we? We have work to do. We have a message to get out to a lost and dying world about Jesus. But if you're not a believer today, I have just shown you your future. 
That's right from God's Word. An eternity apart from Jesus forever. So how much longer, if you've never received Him, how much longer are you going to wait? Do you have a guarantee for next Sunday? You'll be here again? Do you have a guarantee that you will get another invitation to come and believe? I was reading in Ezekiel. Interesting little chapter 12. The days of Ezekiel, twice the Lord punished them for their sins. Twice Nebuchadnezzar came and sacked that city. Twice the people were, were um, struck by the Lord because of those sins. Twice they reverted back to the very same sins after the Lord had punished them. And they started to claim, well, the Lord's not going to do this again. <laughs> Just remarkable to me. They came to a conclusion the Lord never keeps His word. He'll never strike Him again. And Ezekiel's message was just as simple as this. None of my words shall be delayed any longer. Whatever word I speak, I will perform. And the Lord kept His word and struck them the third time. Here, keep these words too. Alright? That's where we stand in the future. With Jesus. Is that where you stand? With Jesus. Let's talk to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, since you know every heart in this room, it's, it's a, a fact that we're dependent upon you to draw people to yourself. If there might be some among us who have never received Jesus Christ as their Savior, may this be the day that they see a hand extended to them in mercy and love and grace. And they come to know that now is the day of salvation. They can receive Jesus Christ and know what their eternity is made of through faith in Him. Lord, even if it takes something frightful as this to bring them to their senses, do it. Because Your Word has said these things. We didn't make it up. It's Your Word that declares it. And I pray that You reach the hearts that need it today especially. Lord, for those, those of us who already know You, we've got cause to praise You. But we are also alarmed by these very same words. Not that they're our experience, but they are the experience of those that we know who do not know you currently. And I pray, Lord, that you open up our hearts and our mouths with the gospel and give us the, the motivation, even with these words, to go and share this word that's necessary and uh, something that's powerful and can change a life forever. Forever is not a word we're going to use lightly, Lord, when we consider what we've heard today. Thank you for your your faithfulness in our lives and the work that you do. Draw people to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.